Hey, welcome everyone to another edition of Screen Talk Live. We've got a very exciting guest this week. I'm Eric Cohn, the Executive Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our Editor at Large, as well as TIFF's great Artistic Director and Co-Head, Cameron Bailey. It's really great to have you here, Cameron. We know you're sometimes on the other side of the equation listening in, so we thought it would be fun to bring you into our world. So it's He's so also all over the airwaves himself, Cameron. He's more exposed than we are. We have discovered how to do our jobs from sitting in our little cubicles wherever we are at home. And, and it's actually working out quite well. We've launched a stay-at-home cinema thing at TIFF. We've been doing it for the last two months. And that's uh, part of my job now. So it's about reaching out to your audience and connecting them Absolutely. and engaging them, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, everyone is, is isolated one way or the other, but people are still watching movies. In some cases, watching more than ever. I'm certainly watching more with my family than I ever did. And we figure that let's give people something in addition to movies to watch, some conversations. We've had such a great list of people. We started with this movie that is really part of Tiff Lore, um, Princess Bride, which, and I don't know if you were there, but 1987, um, that was my first year covering our festival. I think that and was my first year at your festival. Okay, all right. We premiered a Princess, The Princess Bride that year. Uh, and we brought it back. That was our first day at home cinema. We had Mandy Patinkin come on and tell some stories about the making of that movie and launching it. And we've had Sarah Pauly and Diego Mortensen and Guillermo del Toro. Tonight we have Ryan Johnson. We're doing another uh, sort of TIFF memory movie, which is Blooper. Uh, you might have been in the room in 2012 when that opened the festival and kind of moved the It exploded, yeah. Yeah, people were shocked that we were opening with this uh, crazy action movie. Uh, but uh, it was a great night, and Ryan's going to be here to talk, um, be somewhere online to talk uh, about it uh, this evening. It's it's interesting talking about all this stuff right now because usually it seems to me like you're more in sort of a covert mode right now. We'd be seeing each other at Cannes, sitting down, sort of looking ahead to the fall. And what kind of films are, are you seeing? What are you hearing? All that kind of stuff. Just how much has that process changed for you now that we've had a bunch of festivals that didn't happen, films that have uncertain futures? Are they 2020, 2021? Just, I mean, it's it's fascinating from a programming standpoint to wonder how much your job must have been changed by the last few weeks. Oh yeah, entirely. I mean, this is a year unlike any other year I've ever experienced. I think this is my 23rd year working for TIFF in one way or the other as a programmer, co-head, et cetera. Uh, and there's never been a year like this. We would all be at can typically, you know, getting up early in the morning for those 8.30 screenings and trying to be wowed by, you know, new films. And it, it's such an exciting time. You're also just running around, taking meetings, figuring out what's coming next. Our programming team is there. We're putting our list together. We're chatting about movies. That's all happening online now. Uh, we're still seeing films, but it's not in our lovely screening room at Tiff Bell Lightbox. It's instead at home on the biggest screen we can find. But you know, every now and then you do still get that feeling. Uh, I did watch a couple of films um, in the last two weeks that probably would have been very good candidates for can and likely candidates, although we don't know what their list exactly was or would be. Uh, but I could imagine myself sitting in the Lumiere in Cannes actually watching that film because it was a kind of film uh, that we've seen there before, from the kind of filmmaker we've seen there before, but suddenly I'm watching it at home. And it's a really eerie experience, actually. 
you're really good communicate with i love that i wish we were there i I know Anne has a question but i was gonna say it's like you're really good at explaining that you had that experience without giving us any hints about what that (laughs) might be well the question I know Eric also would want to know is, is Can is supposedly going to be curating a list of Can branded movies. And, and I wondered how much that question of world premiere is really going to be important this year and, and how many, I understand all the festival um, programmers are, are, and directors are, are in touch with each other and comparing notes about how they're going to proceed. Yeah, this is the other eerie thing about this year. And I mean, we're talking to each other way more than we ever would. This is a kind of a high stakes game. One of the things, the main currencies that festivals have is the ability to launch films. Parasite launched at Cannes last year. And Cannes will always be able to say that one of the most important films of the year was launched at their festival. And, and for us, you know, whether it's Knives Out or Hustlers or other movies that we launched, that's a point of pride for all of us. This year is different because I think we all all realize that there is a kind of an existential threat for film festivals. We want to not just show that we're still relevant and significant to the film ecosystem, but show that we're really an important support for filmmakers, uh, a way to get films noticed by audiences, noticed by people like you in the media as well. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're on Zoom with our former competitors and we're talking about how we can work together more. So one of the things that this raises, obviously, I mean, Anne touched on the the question of premiere status, which has been coming up a lot, but it's also a question of what form a festival can actually take. And what TIFF has said, I think, is kind of fascinating in contrast to what some of the other really big influential festivals have said in this respect. You know, Cannes just said straight away, we're not doing a virtual festival. These films cannot live online. And we've seen so many different arguments about the, the potential of going online versus not going online, buyers aren't super into it. As I understand what, what, what you've said, what you and Joanna Sent have said is that there may be some virtual components to the festival, but what can you tell us about the idea of going online and having online premieres and, and whether or not there is the possibility of doing that as, as you know, in whatever form TIFF takes this year? I think what we're seeing is that this is evolving in real time. When in mid-March, you know, we all had to go home and, and shut our offices and rethink our, our events, um, I think a lot of people who who were used to traditional ways of launching films would never consider anything online, whether that's uh, directors, producers, sales agents, distributors, etc. It was just not the way that they thought of, of cinema. Um, and that's changing. And what we're finding is that, uh, you know, we're all accepting this new reality, right? We're not going to be in cinemas in the same way for a while. Even when cinemas reopen, there's going to be physical distancing. There's going to be new health measures. So what other ways can we find to get movies to audiences? And we're finding that some of those same people who were saying absolutely never, you know, two months ago are thinking of it as more of a possibility maybe not the only possibility i think nobody wants to just show their movies online but they're all willing or most of them are willing uh to consider ways to get movies online as well i think a lot will depend also you know we're going to hopefully see the tenant trailer today a lot will depend on what happens with tenant if it does stay in that july date if it has to move uh, if some part of the way it goes out to audiences has to be online film like Mulan as well, which actually Disney's well set up to get that online. Those kinds of things actually 
actually are, are, are sort of, you know, opening the door further as well to festivals doing more online. And so we've decided part of what we do will be online, not everything, but we're looking at the whole gamut. We're looking at, uh, you know, an online platform that gets more film store audiences. Uh, we're looking at some of these crazy outdoor things. Drive-ins are suddenly back, so we're looking at that as well. Um, and also, of course, using the cinemas that we've used in the past. As so long as they you, open the border, I'll drive up and, and check out the drive-in. Right. <laughs> so, so are you thinking that there will be uh, a local festival as well as a, a festival that's being somehow experienced without people being in Toronto? And do you have a sense of where Toronto is going to be in the fall, in September, how it's starting yeah. to open up? That is also evolving. We're in a similar place to, I think, many parts of the U.S. Uh, we haven't been hit as hard as New York State and, and New Jersey, but, you know, there, there is a lockdown. And the public health authorities are being, I think, appropriately cautious here about reopening up. Uh, just this weekend, you will be able to play on basketball courts and, and soccer fields again for the first time in weeks. Uh, and, and cinemas come a long way after that, obviously. Um, so we're talking to the city, to the province of Ontario, to the federal government about things like the border, things like uh, what public health measures look like in cinemas, what size gatherings will be allowed. And we'll just follow whatever is dictated, but we've got contingency plans for every eventuality. So we know what we will be, what we will want to do based on what we'll be able to do. Um, and, and trying to make a number of different plans almost simultaneously. And, you know, we'll see. And in terms of the local, I guess the good news is that, you know, there's a strong uh, film community in Toronto and in Canada that we've always supported at the festival. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of great filmmakers here and, um, and people who, who are delivering new films. And that will continue, which is great. Uh, some people who will be able to get to Toronto. Uh, Eric, I hope you are able to drive up if you, if you need to. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of it we will be reaching out online to, to reach industry and media who won't be able to travel or who won't be kind of comfortable traveling still. Because I think a lot of people, even once the restrictions are lifted, there's going to be a bit of a lag, I think, before people are fully comfortable being on a plane. Um, so we're taking all of that into account. The other thing this raises is the, the blend of programming that's so distinctive to Toronto is something that it's hard to imagine Toronto without. I mean, Anne and I talk about this all the time. As you know, when we go to the festival, you know, there's the awards component and the higher profile films, and then you have discovery, you have platform, and you're very good at trying to message to folks like us, which of those films should be worth our time so that we kind of go beyond just, you know, looking at the most obvious kind of flashy stuff that's out there. And I was thinking about that this week because I did this story about Locarno and their decision to cancel and realizing that they couldn't get the bigger film. So even if they had the smaller films, it wouldn't be distinctively Locarno because those smaller films benefit from the profile of the bigger films and kind of it generates more conversation. Just how much are you getting a sense of whether or not you can pull off that kind of balance in Toronto this year? Yeah, that balance is critically important to our festival, I think, in particular, because we can, you know, we premiered The Martian in Toronto, which is like a half a billion dollar grocer, uh, but also wavelengths, films, short films, platforms, you mentioned, and, and that balance is really important. Um, 
what it's looking like now is that kind of across the board, uh, some films are not going to be available because they're moving into next year. But many need to be or want to be uh, still releasing this fall, and they're looking for places to launch. Uh, and that actually does go across the board from some of the bigger films that have determined that they are going to stay in 2020 um, to some of the, the, the you know, more art house films or specialty films as well. It's just that there are fewer of those. And, you know, we already know uh, that festivals that are taking place maybe in the first half of next year uh, are looking to talk in films now that they would not have done yet. They were probably going to wait a few months in a typical year before inviting, but they want to actually make sure that they've got the lineups in place. And some of the films just decide, we don't need to launch this year, we're going to wait till next year. So for us, you know, it's a it's a it's just a landscape that's changing all the time. Uh, there are also films that have been delayed in post-production. Uh, if you had plans for an orchestral score and your orchestra's not all in the same place you are, that's hard. That's mm. affected some of the films we were looking at. So all of these things are happening kind of all at once and we're just kind of, we're seeing and, um, and, and kind of opening those conversations with films that we know are definitely gonna be available to us. So are you assuming that maybe talent is gonna be less willing to, to go uh, in person um, to Toronto? Yeah, we've heard um, a number of different things. We've been talking to uh, talent reps, publicists especially, but also some of the, the bigger companies that have their own publicity arms. And, and as you probably know, they're working with talent in different ways now. Some of the films that have been launched in the last two months are launched with online junkets. So that's new, but I think companies are getting used to doing that. Um, I've, I've read about uh, actors doing their own lighting and photo shoots for magazine covers in their homes. People send them a, a lighting kit and they do it all themselves. So there are ways to deliver that kind of publicity boost without actually flying someplace and doing it in person and sitting you know, in a room full of you know, 50 journalists, uh, which I think might not happen for a little while. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, Maybe it will, but I would be surprised. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the red so, yeah. carpet aspect of this is really going to yeah, be so diminished. that's a whole other yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, what, what is good is that everyone we've talked to has told us that talent still want to support the films that they've made. They're getting used to doing more things online. Where they can be in person, they will be. Uh, but if they can't be in person, it doesn't mean that they don't turn up at all. It just means they might just they might be on a big screen in Toronto movie theater. Uh, they might be actually engaging with fans in a more direct way, like we're doing right now. All of those things are things that um, that we're looking at. What is what is your sense from uh, other sides of the industry that tend to come to Toronto? Are, are buyers uh, looking at the potential for Toronto to be to be a market? I mean, irrespective of whether they're on the ground or not. Yeah, all of this has also been shaken up so much this year, and this happened early. We knew even before the lockdown um, that things would be different this year because we knew, uh, just based on what was happening in Asia, that there's a significant portion of both buyers and sellers that would not be able to travel. Uh, so that, that was something that began to shift fairly early on. Uh, and now, you know, there's still this... You know, the usual number of movies have been made that we would see in any given year, and a lot of them are looking to um, to go on the market uh, for buyers for distribution in different territories around the world. Some of that can slow down. 
uh, as I'm sure you guys know, in the film business, sometimes there are actual time windows on when a film has to be sold. Uh, when it has to be presented to buyers, financiers need their money back. All of those kinds of things have to happen. So that commerce needs to continue. Uh, and the people who sell films are looking for places to do that. And some of that will change. Some of that will happen online. Uh, you know, most people who sell movies have their own kind of proprietary uh, screening platforms that they, they use to do secure screeners for buyers. Um, buyers are getting more used, I think, to seeing films, um, you know, via a screening link. The one thing, and we can do that, and I think we, you know, we have the opportunity to, to set that up for the industry as well, and that will be a part of it. There will be some people who won't be able to travel from where they are to Toronto as normal. Uh, but uh, I think we also are looking at other options as well. Um, we want to be able to, wherever we can, offer what we offer in Toronto every year, which is the opportunity for buyers to see movies with an audience or to get to capture some of that buzz. So it's not just the buyer's own reaction to the movie, but they're actually seeing it alongside an audience and press and other industry members. And then there's even been some talk of, you know, the buyers who can't travel from Tokyo or from Paris or places like that. Is there a way for them to watch the same movie uh, in their home city uh, at a special private screening that's set up for them? So these are all things that, that we're, we're looking at. I have to assume you, you're accredited for the CAN market in June, the, the virtual market. Mm -hmm. Sorry, so can I say the, I'm asking about the Cannes virtual market, the Marche. Mm -hmm. Are you are you attending that, exploring the options? Uh, yes, I believe we uh, we have accreditation, uh, and yeah, we're planning to uh, to to check it out, see what they're doing. We were in touch with uh, Jerome Payard, who runs uh, the market in Cannes, and a lot of the people who are participating as well. And I think it's just an uh, it's an attempt to to try to just continue the business because the business hasn't actually stopped, right? The movies are still there for sale and, and people who are distributing movies in whatever territory still need a slate of films for the rest of this year and for next year. So we were, what I like about this actually is that um, the people we're talking to, nobody's just kind of laying down and saying, we're gonna wait it out. People are all, all thinking about how we can figure out a way to adapt. I like the idea that you would be able to sell tickets to an online festival or, or that you would have a, a restricted festival. Can you explain what that means to people who don't know? And if, is yeah, that what I you're going to do? Some festivals have done this already. And I think most of the, the platforms that would be the, the sort of the backbone of any online festival can offer the ability to limit the number of people who can see a film, limit the time window when you can see it, and also limit the place where you can see it. Uh, so they can be uh, geofenced so that, you know, if you're a festival in Switzerland, you can only see it in Switzerland. And, or if you're in Toronto, you can only see it for 24 hours or 48 hours, or only 1,000 or 2,000 people can see the film. And that I think gives a lot of comfort to the people who might be worried about their films being seen too widely, exposing them before they can actually make some money off of getting the films out online. There's all of the different windows that, you know, need to be followed in terms of theatrical and then, you know, uh, premium VOD and the other windows. Uh, and I think if you can kind of put those parameters around films at a festival online, 
that gives a lot of um, a lot of leeway and a lot of comfort to people who need to 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 follow the whole life of the film and earn as much as they can out of it. All right, so we have a bunch of questions in the Q and A, and I want to make sure we get to those before we do that. One one other question that I wanted to throw your way is something we we've debated quite a bit in the last few weeks in terms of how festivals are kind of working together. And Anne brought this up at the beginning. It does seem like there is a lot of communication going on much more than there would be in an average year, but we're also seeing actual coordinated efforts to do some kind of festival programming online. There's this, we are one thing that I know is a, Toronto is involved among many others the Tribeca Enterprise put together with um, YouTube and uh, you know we've heard so many different kinds of ideas I mean we ran this nutty Q&A with Paul Schrader where he was like Netflix should just run the festival of festivals which you know probably was not your story <laughs> but I, I love to get, I'm sure that yeah, went over big <laughs> but Netflix saved the world. no but the thing that, that I think is interesting about it is that it it, it does raise this question of what is the value of having an individual profile for a festival right now when there are these you know conversations about you know big kind of mobilized efforts online yeah, I, you know, I, I think every festival has to try to maintain its identity as we realize that this is an unusual year and, and that working together is actually going to help all of us. Um, and it's like, you know, this, this, it's a real threat. It's a real crisis. Um, people are worried. People can't be in movie theaters now. They're worried about uh, when they might be able to go back. And I think what we can do is, is kind of is get some strength from Unified. Uh, we've had great conversations with uh, Julie Hunsinger, Tele Telluride, and uh, Eugene Hernandez, and uh, and Leslie Kleinberg at the New York Film Festival, with Alberto Barbera at Venice, and we're all in the same time window. We're all usually struggling really hard to to establish ourselves as, as kind of you know leading festivals in in this part of the calendar. Uh, but this is a year where it's really important for us to work together. We're also talking to festivals across Canada. There's a number of them in Vancouver and Calgary and Halifax that follow us every year and often follow our programming in terms of inviting some of the same films. We're working with them. In Toronto, we have partner festivals that we work with all year round, Hot Docs, uh, Imaginative, the Real Asian Festival and others. And it's amazing to see the spirit of collegiality uh, kind of come out of this, this crisis period. And I hope some of that lasts even after you know we're all back competing with each other fiercely before we go to the, the other questions the other question i had for you um cameron we we worry a little bit about toronto because it's such a big festival it's such a, a sprawling enterprise and it's expensive to mount a festival like that and to make all the kinds of changes technologically that may be required and and are you getting the sponsors are you getting the support that you need and will it be a smaller festival in the end you know it, it's a great question and um, we are looking at a festival that's the right size for this year uh, and that's still very much a question to be decided. Um, it, we're probably not in a position where we can do the 2019 festival in 2020. That's just not realistic, but we want to do something that's exactly the right size for this year that still celebrates movies, that still has those high impact marquee films, that still has the range of films that we've had every year. And uh, we have a number of corporate partners and they're you know, really important to us in terms of just the relationship and our bottom line. Uh, and yeah, that many of them have been hit as well. I mean, there's some sectors, as you know, hospitality, hotels, airlines, etc., have been seriously hit by this crisis, and that affects their ability 
to sponsor things like TIFF. Um, so we're talking to all of them. Uh, we've got some good reactions so far in terms of commitments to uh, maintain support uh, to the best of their abilities and the best levels that they can. We're also talking to government. We get a, a, a significant amount of support from different government agencies as well. We've got to go to them because everyone's affected by this. Um, you know, the, 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 the tax base is different. Uh, all of the revenues that were coming into government is different now. Um, but what we're trying to argue is that certainly in Toronto, our festival is one of the key events that draws attention, that draws uh, tourists and all of the dollars that come with that to Toronto every year. And, and for that reason, it's really vital that we present something exciting and strong this year. I have to assume the government is going to be there for you. More than ours, anyway. As well. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we don't get that in our country. <laughs> All right, Eric, what questions do we have? <laughs> yeah, we got a lot of really good ones. I'm going to start with a big one. It comes from Suchita. Suchita, I hope I'm saying your name right. Since the Academy is shifting the Oscars, what happens to other festivals? Now we should say- Now that hasn't happened yet. The Academy. <laughs> they might change the date a Just little bit. Just to clarify what, what this is a reference to is, I, I think that yesterday there was, there was some speculation that the Oscars might shift. It's our understanding that this is an ongoing discussion. But yeah, they told us already that they were perfectly prepared to change the date, that it was an option that they had open, but they haven't decided yet. So go ahead. If the, if the Academy shifts the Oscars, what happens to the other? I think it's an interesting question, Cameron, also for you, because, you know, it, it does raise the, the, this, um, you know, for, for years, Toronto has had this really crucial identity as sort of the big fall festival that launches a lot of award season titles. So if, if the Oscars are later in, in 2021, do you see that affecting anything that you do? Um, hard to say. I mean, the Oscars dates have moved around a little bit over the last few years to accommodate different things. It, but as I understand it, the, they're contemplating a, a bigger move um, if they do it at all. We would still keep our dates. Uh, you know, the, the landscape has changed so much with films and their, their awards campaigns. I think, you know, and honestly, everything's up for grabs right now. Films that might have had a very almost sort of military campaign planned, uh, you know, maybe from Cannes or from the fall festivals onward, all of that has to shift. So even if the Oscars do change their dates, there's been enough flux in the landscape already that I don't think it affects what we do very much. I think we're still here to launch those films that are going to be the awards contenders, um, whether that's in uh, late February or March or April. And the other, the other point is that it's a good thing if, um, with this very crowded late year landscape, if they do move the date back, it gives the films a little bit longer time to have a platform and to be shown and, and to, be, to reach audiences, which is a good thing. Definitely. I think the release of the films, you know, even once they've had their festival premiere is going to be really critical because we don't know yet when you can get a proper release. Can it, can it be... You know, all across North America, can it be global? There's going to be so many different restrictions in place in, in different territories. So that's going to affect, I think, a, a film's ability to launch a proper awards campaign even more exactly. than Exactly, yeah. So there's a question from Patrick Healy who's asking, do you envision a more online-focused outreach system to the industry who are unable to make it to Toronto in terms of the Grosch 
People's Choice Awards. So for those who don't know, obviously the People's Choice Award, the TIFF, is always a big deal. The bellwether. Yeah, we, we anticipate it and say, well, if it, if it wins, it might win an Oscar too. So with a media legacy similar to Cannes' official selection and competition awards, uh, Patrick is curious to know how the procedures for voting in the Girls People's Choice wow. Awards will be changed or affected by <laughs> Uh, it's a great question. Um, we're we're working on it. Honestly, we don't have an answer right now. The, the People's Choice Award voting has migrated online already, but um, you know, typically it's based on uh, like a ticket number that you have, and you use that to vote. Uh, we want to make sure that voting is legit, uh, and we've in the past just put some measures in place to make sure that you know you people were not voting um, sort of in in an ineligible way from abroad. But this year, people might be seeing some of the films that are in official selection um, from wherever they are in the world, maybe not from uh, being in Toronto, in which case, um, you know, we want to make sure that they still have the chance to vote. So we're looking at it. We're aware that things have to shift a little bit this year, and we're adapting. A question from Casey Barron from the Austin Film Festival, uh, asking you, Cameron, if there's anything that's getting you particularly excited while creating a digital or even hybrid festival? It's a nice sort of, you know, silver linings type of question, I suppose. Yeah, yeah it's a great question. I'm, I mean, what we've done with stay-at-home cinema, where we partner with the streaming service Crave in Canada, has been, has been really promising to us. We're getting, you know, during the time when we're doing the live interview, around an average of 5,000 people watching. If we were doing this in person, there's no way that we can't fit 5,000 people in our building in Toronto, for instance. Um, and then it, it actually rises over the course of that week to about 17,000 people who get to, who catch up with it. So we're actually getting a lot of engagement. That is a hopeful sign. I think people love uh, the ability to engage in what feels like a more intimate way because you can just have your phone in your hand and suddenly you know, you're know, you watching uh, Ethan Hawke and you can send a question in to someone like that. And I think so that, that to me is, is something that has some room for growth. Um, so we're looking at doing more of that. I think also there's some films that at our festival, if they came in, say, without a big name director or a big name cast, uh, it's harder for them to get noticed. But I think online is in a way uh, kind of a very democratic place where people get excited about something. You see this with viral videos and social media all the time. Suddenly everybody knows about it. And I think there's that option as well where something that's just very exciting. Last year we had this amazing Indian movie, Jelly Katu. Uh, which we launched uh, at the festival theatrically, if a movie like that launched online and suddenly just, you know, word spread like wildfire, especially with a very large audience coming out of South Asia, that to me is an exciting prospect as well. Yeah, the crazy wild buffalo movie that took Toronto by the storm. So that actually leads into another really interesting question from Ellen Gittleman, who's asking if it'll be possible for the general population to watch films online. And if so, will you be limiting the number of people who will be able to watch? Uh, will it be limited to industry professionals or anything like that? I think it's a really interesting question because, I mean, even over the course of this conversation, I briefly lost internet. There's so many different bandwidth issues that come up yes. these sort of uh, questions and we've seen a lot of things not quite work perfectly so it does raise a really interesting question of just how many people are you going to let in yeah 
Um, yeah, we're, you know, we're all putting a lot of demands on internet bandwidth right now, and, and we see the results when that happens sometimes. Um, I, I think probably we, we will have to, to limit the number of people who can watch, but that doesn't mean that we're shutting out the public. The public will very much be a part of that. Um, typically, you know, when we're doing this just physically in cinemas in Toronto, uh, we've got a proportion of, of those tickets are, are available for industry, for media, for different stakeholders, uh, for our partners and for members and non-member public. Um, and that will probably be what we do, but do it online instead. But we want to make sure that if we're bringing new films out into the world, that just an average moviegoer, anybody, you, uh, can have a chance to see it as well. And last question, and then we'll move on with a, a few closing things. But um, this is a, one that I think a lot of people have been bringing up to us. Uh, we've been talking constantly about your festival, about Cannes, about how the major festivals will sort of impact the ecosystem we're so accustomed to. And a lot of times we hear from other festivals that are saying basically, what about us? And Chandler here is asking in Zoom, what do you see as the role of smaller regional film festivals in this new digital world, which I think is an important one to address. You mentioned some other smaller festivals, and I'm sort of curious about how you, how you assess their role now versus, say, how you'd be relating to them under more traditional circumstances. And I would imagine they would be a little more fragile, too, financially. Yeah, I think financially and in terms of just the infrastructure they have available to them, yeah, smaller festivals are inevitably more fragile. I certainly, you know, I've worked with smaller festivals in the early part of my career. I know what it's like to try to put on a festival with, you know, four or five people. Um, and yeah, I think they remain critically important. They're often the place where we discover new voices, where uh, you know new filmmakers come up. Uh, they, what I find still surprising, although maybe I shouldn't, many filmmakers don't believe that they have a chance with the bigger festivals. They actually don't even bother to submit. Uh, and that's a shame because every film has a chance uh, with our festival or any festival. But if you feel that way and you don't submit to Cannes or Toronto or Sundance or a festival like that, and you start with your own regional festival, that's often the place that's going to support you the most, right? Because it's important to them to have new voices too. So yeah, I think, I think we're all in this together. Some of us are bigger, some of us have wider reach or more resources, but we're all here to do the same thing. All right, so a couple of things before we let you go. First off, when we have people uh, do Instagram Lives and things like that, one of the first questions that comes up is, what are you doing with that extra time? It's, it's fascinating for, I think, a lot of us who are constantly cheering. What extra time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, where were, you, where were you folks before when we were telling you what to watch? Now you want recommendations. But <laughs> it's funny because, um, as it happens this week, Apple Podcasts has put us in a new section uh, called Movie Fanatics. So if you go to apple.co slash moviefanatics, you'll see us listed among some other really great movie podcasts, which we're really happy about. But also, um, we want to uh, repay the favor they've asked us to make sure we're telling people uh, some good things to watch. And uh, be curious, Cameron, from your perspective, you know, you've got so many different things you could recommend, but if you were to pick one or two, what would you, uh, what would you throw people's way? Um, I, I'm going to say, even if you've watched it before, uh, Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy mm. is still so satisfying to watch right now. The films are just beautiful. They're smart. Uh, there's, they're, 
I think it's the right tone for right now. We sh we've shown two of them so far in stay-at-home cinema. We had Ethan Hawke for Before Sunrise and, and uh, Julie Delpy for Before Sunset. And we just got such a great reaction. They're so satisfying. I feel like right now, especially, you want something that, that's not mean, you know, or misanthropic. I think that that's a hard tone right now. And these are films that are about life and love, and, and, and but they're not smarmy um, or uh, sentimental. Uh, and so those are two of my favorites. Um, you know, I, I gravitate towards Wong Kar Wai's movies in times of stress as well. I find them very uh, rich and there's always something to look at. So In the Mood for Love, I think, uh, would be a great film to watch at any time. And one of the sad things that um, we wanted to talk about uh, that happened last week, and I know it hit all of us really hard, um, Lynn Shelton. She was a yeah. filmmaker that we really cared about at IndieWire. And I know you introduced your sister's sister uh, at TIFF, mm -hmm. which is, I think, maybe my favorite of, of her films. Um, it's just so hard to take a loss like this when, when a filmmaker is, is just reaching their, their prime, really. There was so much more to come from her. Um, you must have gotten to know her, Cameron. Yeah, I, I did a little bit. And, um, and I loved her work, and I, I do feel like her work was underappreciated while she was alive. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that maybe one thing that comes out of this is that people will catch up with her films. She was a great filmmaker. She made films that are maybe deceptive in that they, they look like they're easy because they're just about people in contemporary time, but they're, those are hard films to make. Films about human relations where we all have experience of what we're watching on screen so we can all judge it against our own truth, our own experience. And, um, and she had, she could cut to the heart of how people are with each other and how, how people are contradictory and, and they sometimes work against their own best interests, uh, but they're still reaching out to try to connect with other people. And that's some of the hardest work to do as a storyteller. And she did Great. it so well so often. Yeah, you know, I was sitting in this spot almost exactly two weeks ago when I, when I spoke with uh, Lynn and, and Mark Marin on, on Instagram Live. And so just hearing this news has been an incredibly surreal process to me because she was so, you know, energetic and filled with life and talking about uh, these new projects that they were working on. Uh, so, so the news is all the more shocking because of that. And uh, I went back and looked at some old emails because I'd, I'd corresponded with her over the years for various stories. And I actually got an email from her in 2010 when I had been, I, I'm from Seattle. She was a, a you know, notable Seattle film figure. And I was trying to, to touch base with her when I came to the Seattle International Film Festival. And uh, we missed each other because she was moving to LA at that point temporarily to direct an episode of Mad Men. And she had this line in her, she wrote me, she was like, I'm sorry to miss you. I have this really exciting thing happening. I'm going to direct an episode of Mad Men. Hope I don't fuck up and end the series or something like that. <laughs> and, you know, she was a self-deprecating person, but yeah. what everybody keeps saying, and they talk about her laugh or her ability to, to, to do karaoke, she, she brought a lot of joy into the room. Yeah, and I also think it's worth pointing out that um, the kinds of movies she made are really hard to do well. And as a critic and Cameron, you were a critic. It's, it's, I think a lot of times we, we, we are too dismissive of, uh, you know, comedies and, and movies that deal with family and, and very romantic comedies. Yeah. It's, I mean, Hump Day, I think smuggled it in because she could use this, you know, alpha male context in a way. And then she pulled off your sister's sister in a similar kind of 
way, but I, I, I almost feel like I, I was unfair to the film she made after that. Even something like Sort of Trust, where I focused on how great Mark Maron was. And the reality is, somebody pointed out, he was kind of becoming her muse towards mm-hmm. the end there, you know, also directing, directing him in Glow, and they were working on a new project together. And it's like, I think on some level, you know, as great as he is in a movie like Sort of Trust, it's, it's really, it's the filmmaking that, that she was able to do to bring out these kinds of performances in a way that felt so naturalistic. So It made a lot of sense that she would collaborate so well with Mark Duplass, who was able to deliver a lot of that improvisatory acting that's really hard to nail down. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So uh, as, as much as, um, you know, we're recommending all these other kinds of things these days, I do hope people make the effort to watch those films. and yeah, Watch Luke Shelton, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Cameron, thanks for making the time to be here and, and taking our questions and, and as well as you did and being at least transparent enough to give us a sense that there is some forward motion. So we're excited to hear about it. He plays his cards close to the vest while seeming to be giving us everything. <laughs> we're reading, we're reading the, the TV. It's, a, it's an art. Thank you, Cameron. It's a pleasure to no, see you. I you. miss you. I miss you too. I miss you both. It's been great talking to you. And thanks for inviting me. Really appreciate it. We'll see you soon one way or another. All right. Bye. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.